morning, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. John chapter 4, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, he didn't do the physical baptism, but his disciples did. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. That's a strange formation of words in our language right there. Read it with me. And he must needs go through Samaria. I'm going to preach from this thought today. Divine imperative. Divine imperative. That's what we read in verse 4. He must needs go through. God, we thank you for your word today. Precious people in the house, the spirit that is moving, that is working, that is engaging with us. We ask you, Lord, to strengthen our hand, renew our mind, encourage our soul, help us to get something meaty today, Lord. I ask you to break these religious strongholds around people just trying to be formulated and look the way. I'm asking you to get inside our mind and get inside our soul, get inside our thoughts and get inside our heart today. Reach deep into what we are, God, with your power and your word this morning. In the name of Jesus, I ask it, Lord. Look at somebody and say, divine imperative. Hallelujah. You may be seated. The Lord bless you. Looking forward to Wednesday night, iron sharpens iron service. I've asked three of the sisters. I've given them a... um, a subject and a thought, and I'm looking forward to see where they take us Wednesday night. Webster says that the phrase divine imperative means something you and I are deeply compelled to do. Something you and I are deeply compelled to do. He offered these these secondary impressions, if you will. It's an urgent pressing, a moral obligation, and a divine responsibility. Say it again. Something you and I are compelled to do, an urgent pressing, a moral obligation, and a divine responsibility. Like verse 4 that we just read, he said he must, needs, go through Samaria. He was being compelled, pressed, urged, obligated, responsible to go to Samaria. By the way, the reason that is important is because the Jews would go miles out of their beaten path, their normal path of routine, to avoid any form of contact with Samaria or its inhabitants. The Jews wanted nothing to do with the people that lived in Samaria. But let, let, me, let me proceed here. John 9, 4, when Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me. That is a divine imperative. When Romans 14 and 10 said, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That is a divine imperative. Holiness is a divine imperative. See how quiet it gets here. 
Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 16, be ye holy. God told Peter that, for I am holy. That is a divine responsibility. That is a moral responsibility that we have, an obligation to fulfill. Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Let me talk to you argumentative people today. Any argumentative people in the house? No, this must be for the tape ministry then or for somebody on Facebook. I remember sitting in a board meeting years ago and it, it, the subject came up. And one elder said, well, I'll tell you what I think what holiness means. It means it's so important that we better give our life's study to the, to the reason, the root, the cause, and what it means. Because the Bible said, no man shall see the Lord without it. That makes holiness an imperative, a moral obligation. It's not, it's not up to your interpretation, my personal take on it. It is a moral obligation for us to search it out and to live it in our life. Hallelujah. And when Jesus said in John 3 verse 7, you must be born again. That is a moral obligation. That is a divine responsibility. That is a divine imperative. You must be born again. That's not how I take it, not how I interpret it. You must be born again. I don't know why any, anybody would be other than culture and fear of responsibility. But we have no need to be afraid of moral obligations in our life. If anything, they are sent to help us, to corral us, to keep us. Sometimes walls aren't necessarily to keep others out, but, but you know, you in and your, your mind confined and contained to the things of God. We, we love to talk about God's plans for us. Oh, I don't know what God's plans are for me. If I've heard that once, I've heard it a hundred times in my ministry. Someone come up and say, as if they're going to be sent to some far country, and they might be. We love to talk about the greatness potential of what God might do in our own life and ministry. Well, divine imperatives are very much a part of God's will for our life. And if we can't be responsible for what God puts in our lap at home, we'll never be given a field larger than that because we've ignored divine imperatives. Now, the thing about this story that's unique is Jesus knew that Jacob's well was in a city in the nation of country of Samaria called Sychar. Jacob's well has been in the same place ever since it was dug by the patriarch. You can go there today and visit the well of Jacob. But Jesus was being spiritually driven to this point because he knew there was going to be an encounter. God knew of an encounter with this woman that's going to bring great change not only to one, but to her family, to her community, to her city, to her country. That's why I say moral obligations push us. They inspire us. Divine obligation and responsibility are not a negative thing. In this crazy 
putrid culture that society is becoming today in our, in our country. People don't want anything to do with responsibilities. That's, that's nothing new, I guess. But it just seems like it's being, being uh, discussed at greater, greater lengths today. Moral obligations push you to be the best you can be. How about that? And the Bible said Jesus in Luke 4 verse 1 was being led of the Spirit into the wilderness. He didn't want to go there in the flesh. He was being compelled by the Spirit to go somewhere lonely, difficult, intimidating. Because it was a moral obligation. It's funny how God ordains Geography occasionally, points in our life, paths that we're going to travel, all because I'm going to meet somebody that needs to know what I know, or I'm going to meet somebody that I need to know what they already know. Nothing happens by accident. There are points, waypoints, crossroads in life that God has ordained. They become divine responsibilities. We've got to be at the right place at the right time. You work with that person for a reason. It's not just random geography. You work at that, in that cubicle next to that person or in that trough by that man, that, that, that area where those people are, not by accident. And let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God in the heavens, Jesus said. And it's not so much the geography that stands out, but the crossroads, the encounter that the Lord is going to use to put us on the right path. For example, that whale wasn't one minute late, one minute early. That thing was in the right place the moment Jonah needed it. Why is that? Because God has an amazing time clock. He knows who to put in your life at the right time, at the right place. Maybe you've been put into somebody's life at such a time as this. But it wasn't the whale. It wasn't the geography. God had his mind on the Ninevites. But he used that, and he used him to fulfill a divine responsibility, a moral obligation, a divine imperative. There were thousands of people that needed God steeped in their traditional religion. <clears throat> Psalmist said that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Don't know why I came this way today. Steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And I don't think, it, to me at least, maybe it is for you, but for me at least, it's not like, ooh, where do I feel led to go today? Ooh, I'm here because of divine inspiration. I don't think it's like that at all. I think it's just things come into your life that move you this way, move you that way. You couldn't go that way. There's a detour, so you had to go that way. And you end up there where God wants you to be, and imperatives occur, responsibilities are fulfilled. I probably could take a minute here and ask for a couple of personal testimonies of how you, how you ever came to the knowledge of truth, how you were ever born again. There's someone in your past, somebody that you met that directed your steps to truth. 
All right. When I say infamous or notorious, I mean what I'm saying was the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews. I don't want to talk about it, but if you have in your mind the subject of racism, it's that times a hundred. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Samaritans were originally, if you went back far enough in the genealogy, they were Jews that married Gentiles, and this own community of their own religion and ambition was formed, and they had this disdain where they came from, their heritage. They hated the Jews, and the Jews hated them in return. And here you have this man, Jesus, who no doubt his brethren, his family, his ancestors would have thought, I'm not going near that well. We know who lives near Jacob's well. Bias, racism, hatred, hostility. Hey, everybody deserves a chance to be saved. You know that today? It's very small-minded people that think they're better or above someone else because of the skin of color of their skin or the nation of their, where they come from. It's very small-minded people that I wouldn't spend much time at all with if I were you. But it was real. It was real. Someone said, well, the Samaritans must not have been spiritual. Oh, the Samaritans believed that Messiah would return to their own city. The Jews preached it for centuries, but they believed they were a cut above, that they were extracted from the genealogy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for a divine purpose. They looked to Messiah to come to Jacob's well, to Sakar, to Samaria. They thought the Jews were these false doctrine innovators and discoverers and administrators of. They hated the Jews. The Jews hated them in back, hated them in return. But look at this conversation. I've got to show you an amazing conversation that goes on between this Samaritan woman and this God in human flesh, 100% Jewish. Verse 9, she says to him, the Samaritan woman says to him, this is how she addresses him, Jew. That's the first thing she did. She addressed him as a Jew. I'm old enough to know, some of you young folks may not, and it's a good thing if you don't, but I'm old enough to know that that term's often used in derogatory mannerisms in public. Jew. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask of me a drink? You can almost see the sneer on her lips as all of those years of racism, radical racism is in her thoughts. Mama taught her that. Daddy taught her that. Grandpa taught him that. We don't fellowship with them people. They're not like us. The first address she uses, first title she places on him, Jew. But thank God it doesn't end there. doesn't end there. Her racial hostility, her years of non-compromising, opinionated beliefs, 
come out. You know, as soon as you open your mouth, we know what someone is. But there's growing occurring. Anytime anybody spends time in the presence of the Lord, anytime you, I, or anybody else spends time in the presence of the Lord Jesus, growth's going to occur. If, you, if you're there because you want to be there, not forced to be there, growth's going to occur. And let me tell you, what every pastor appreciates, what every child of God should appreciate, is when we grow out of what we've been. I used to be this way, now I'm that way. When your opinions grow, when your attitudes grow, when your hostilities don't grow but they die, when your racisms are laid on the altar, when your inconsistencies die at the altar, that's growth. I used to pitch my lot in with everybody that hated anything. But something's changing in this, in this Samaritan woman's conversation. What are you? You're, a, you're just a Jew talking to me. Peter said that we should grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She begins the conversation, Jew. You're a Jew. But very, very briefly into the conversation, just a moment later, something about his presence, something about his voice, something about the content of the message he brings. In verse 11, just two verses later, John chapter 4, verse 11, now she says, Sir, Sir, I... There's been a, th- a handful of times in my life when I'd say yes, sir, or no, or no, sir, to somebody, and they'd kind of correct, try to correct you. Don't call me, sir. I'm no, I'm nobody. You know what I'm talking about? But mom and dad raised us different. You, any, this is what dad told us. If they're older than you, he said, I don't care if they're churchgoers, not churchgoers. If they're your boss or your friend, if they're older than you, that's a sir. It's a show of respect. If she's older than you, it's a show of respect. Ma'am. So when you young people think it's a, it's a derogatory slang being thrown your way, not at all, not in my generation. It's a way of honoring you. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. And she goes from saying, you're just a Jew to sir. Hey, it don't take long. When you start looking in the right place, meaning the presence of the Lord, it doesn't, religion will take on a whole new scent to itself. Organized, structured, church growth will take on a brand new personal meaning to you because now there's a respect level working in her mind. It's almost like a glimmer of light and respect begin to shine in all those years of darkness. Sir? You've got nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. What are you talking about, living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He's checking his character, checking his trademarks, checking his past, his accomplishments. But if you jump down to verse 19, now the Bible says, The woman said to him, Sir, again, I think you're a prophet. Look at this progress going. There's nothing makes a pastor happier than to see people growing in their walk with God. 
The same, the opposite, and I won't spend much time there. The same is the opposite. When you see somebody walking away, they used to love God, be on fire, and, and celebrate and worship, and their hands were in the air instead of staring around church all the time. Now They celebrate, they love God, and you see them go the other way? You talk about depressing a pastor. Well, just quit and give up. Yeah, you come to the wrong horse trough to talk about that, brother. <laughs> Sir! Something inside of me is telling me you're more than just a man, a prophet, a seer. That's what happens when people grow. Their level of knowledge of Jesus elevates. They know more today than they knew yesterday. And I don't mean the sense of of arrogance, but I mean the sense of personal revelation. Verse 25, she uses the term Messiah, and Jesus had not even brought it up. She's just talking to her about the living water of life, which, by the way, not open for interpret, not open for personal uh, commentary. Jesus is talking about the power of the Holy Ghost, the day of Pentecost, the book of Acts, uh, transition of man from lost to saved. He's prophesying of a day to come. And she says, Sir, I think you're a prophet. And now she brings in the subject I've heard about this Messiah. Yeah, you know what she'd heard? He's coming back to Samaria. He's not coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to Samaria. We should be careful how we, how we judge or grade people or think people aren't qualified to hear truth and to grow. I appreciate anybody's effort to learn more about the Lord, learn, learn more about His Word. I used to think this in my young, youthful ministry. I used to think if they don't love and practice truth, they're all going to hell. And that may be doctrinally sound, but let me tell you something. That is so juvenile and immature. I'm not saying everybody's saved. I am saying this, if someone tells me, hey, I prayed last night, and, you, and, and I'm not going to make them explain who they prayed to and where they went and where they in the right, brother, they prayed, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to celebrate any little victories, any little growths, anything. You can beat them up all you want to. Sooner or later, you're even going to grow. And you're going to realize that's good. If anybody gets any form of enlightenment and they go after that enlightenment, brother, we ought to celebrate that. We ought to, we ought to rejoice with those that rejoice. Jew? Sir? Prophet? Messiah? Have you been growing in your life? Hmm? Just take the personal inventory inside your heart. Have you, are you growing like that? Does God mean more to you today than he's ever been in your past? Does the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ mean more to you today than he did last year this time? If other things are taking the place of that, then I want to talk to you this morning. If you're cold and not on fire... If you're lukewarm and not on fire, if you're making decisions out of things all because, well, church isn't the same as it used to be. Number 
Now, church, I thank God for people that are growing in church. Their walk with God is growing. Their maturity level is growing. They're, they're more than what they used to be because they got more word in them, more fellowship in them, more practice in them. But I refuse to let anybody throw that at my feet as if it's my responsibility that you're not on fire for God. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I study every day of my life. I study if I have a migraine or if I'm sick with the flu. I study, I pray, and I don't want your pat on the back. I'm just telling you, I'm trying to do my job, all right? And I know that I know that I know. I know that I know that I know. Some of the burden lies with you. Some of the burden lies with you. Some of the burden lies with you. You've got to stir up the gift of God that's within you by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. I can hear it when people pray. I listen to people. I can thought, oh, that person's growing. Listen to, the, listen to how she's praying. Listen to how he's praying. There's fire in his prayer. There's inspiration in their worship. Here she is. She had every reason to expect Jesus to walk around her. But brother, the longer she stays in his company... If you don't have the Holy Ghost today, you know, I, I would implore, implore you. I beg you. I plead with you. Don't, don't think you are where you need to be. There's so much growing that needs to occur. I'm glad where you're at, but don't stay there, all right? Come get the Holy Ghost today. Come and worship God at the altar. Pray through. Pray back through. It's not enough to be a church member. I love you. I'm glad you're here. But there's so much more time to be spent in the presence of the Lord, sir. <laughs> uh, Messiah, prophet. What's happening here? The more he speaks, the more she's growing. The more he talks, the more she's being challenged to change. I prayed early this morning. It's on my mind all day. God, I, I, I love every soul. And I want every one of us to be in heaven around the throne of God one day just rejoicing. But I am a little tired of having church with people who are just playing games. Now, I'll be patient with you. I love you. In the front or the back. I, I'm, talking, I'm talking to sound people. I'm talking to drummer. I'm talking to keyboard player. I'm talking to sister with the iPad. And I'm talking to everybody in this house today. The time to play church is over. We need to turn that page and get real. Get real. Brother, just open your ear to the news. If we're not living in the last days, they aren't coming. If we aren't living in the last days, the last days are not ever going to come. And the beauty of it all is when you talk to people that are growing, I've never heard one of them say, yeah, I kind of regret this. I, I kind of regret praying so much. I kind of regret uh, helping so much. I kind of regret fasting. And No way. It's, it's so encouraging to be around people who are growing. There's just a different look about them. Their eyes are brighter and their testimony is more encouraging. Finally, verse 29, she goes, and I've got to hurry. She's gone home. Now all the men of the city, where you been? 
What have you been doing out there talking to that Jew? The woman left her water pot, I'm quoting verse 28, reading, went her way to the city and said to the men, that's verse 28, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? <laughs> Jew, sir, prophet, Messiah. You serving the same Jesus you served last year? Or is he greater in your mind today? Hmm? That's revelation. That's revelatory information that's life-changing. Matthew said, Jesus did, and Matthew gospel. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. That's maturity. That's revelation. That's growth. If you're not growing, you're dying. Hello. If you're not growing, it's only a matter of time. Only a matter of time. You're going to take a wrong turn somewhere. If you're not growing, I promise you. All right. Stay positive, Ron. Revelation is such an amazing thing. You know what it does? Sets captives free. Binds the brokenhearted. Sets at liberty them that are bruised. That's what revelation does. It liberates. Many, many years ago in USA Today when it was an actual paper version. Anybody remember that? It had the red and blue on the top. When USA Today was sold in stands or delivered to your home. There was a story in there. And this is the gist of it, the shortened version. The, the authorities had gone into this home, I believe it was Southern California, and arrested the mom and dad. They had been abusing their own daughter. They had been physically beating her. They forced her for years, not nights, not weeks, not months, years to live in a closet in the house. She had to go in there. She came out only to use the restroom. She ate in there. She slept in there. She lived her life in that closet. Authorities got wind of it, sent the law in. Law took mom and dad away. Took the, by this time, she was, a, I think, if I remember right, somewhere in the early 20s. Got her out of the closet. The female authority that was there had a conversation with her in that article they quoted this question. The, the authority said to the woman that had been set free, what are you going to do now? You're free. You don't, ever, you don't ever have to listen to those people again in your life. You are absolutely liberated from bondage. Do anything you want. Go anywhere you want. What do you want to do? And the article said, she said to the authority, go back in the closet. That's all she knew. She'd lived so long under the, um, of the oppression of bondage. That was all she knew. It was normal to her to feel like a captive. It was absolutely everyday normality. How many of us sitting in church today, we're just living a life of captivity. We think it's routine and we're supposed to be here and it's normal and it's just life. It's just the way it goes. Well, the Bible said in John 8, 36, whom the Son has made free. You are free indeed. Free and don't go back into that closet. 
You're free, brother. You're free, sister. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 4, verse 9. But now after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereto you desire? You want to be in bondage, Paul said. Oh, the reason I don't go to that church is there's too much bondage. Bondage, huh? I'll tell you what bondage is. Got to have a Budweiser before noon. That's bondage. Got to have a joint before noon or you got a headache. That's bondage. Got to have something going through your veins or that's, uh, if you're not, your day's ruined. That's bondage. She left me. He left me. I've got all these kids. They're going down a dark road. That's bondage. But you can come and get a life with God that will liberate your soul, set the captivity of your spirit free. I'm not going back in that closet. No. Now look at this. Look at this. Look at this. John chapter 4. I'm reading from 39 to 42. This is so sweet. So powerful. And the Bible said many of the Samaritans believed on him. For the saying of the woman which testified, he, did, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come to him, remember, Jew-hating, racist Samaritans. When the Samaritans were come to him, the Jew, sir, prophet, Messiah, Christ. When they came to him, they begged him to stay with them. And so he hung out for a couple of days, two days. And look at verse 41. Many more believed because of his own word. Verse 42. And they said to the woman, now we believe. Not just because you came and told us about it. You started the interest level. You stimulated our desire. You stirred up our, our hunger. But now we believe because we've heard him ourselves. And look what they say. Look how they address him. That he is indeed Christ the Savior of the world. You know why that occurred? Moral obligation. Divine imperatives that Jesus refused to avoid. The reason the city of Sychar in Samaria had revival and were turned upside down is because Jesus had an obligation he didn't say, not my, not my, I'm not that kind of person. I can't talk about the Lord. Not my job. He was compelled. He was driven. Imagine if he'd have been like me or maybe some of us and said, look, we just don't, we don't hang out. See, divine imperative goes far beyond what we've learned from mom and dad. Moral obligations are bred in your spirit by the presence of God. Divine responsibilities are placed there by the throne of God, not because of who you are, where you've been, who your parents were, what your educational level is. Divine responsibilities, like it or not, every one of us are bearing them today. Every one of us have upon our soul today moral obligations. 
urgent pressings, divine imperatives, spiritual responsibilities. Had Jonah got his way, but a divine imperative pushed him to Nineveh. Ever feel those deep moral impressions going on inside your soul? Ever feel those drives deep inside of you that I've got to do more? I've got to, I've got to do more for the Lord. I'm not talking about messing with who you are and your opinion of yourself, but I'm talking about inward obligations. Inward inspirations. It's all preacher's job. Wrong. Wrong. You have a divine imperative living inside of you. Tell everyone. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. That's a divine imperative. And it's not just my job. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy today. Thank you for your loving kindness that's better than life. Thank you for your hand that leads us and guides us. It instructs us and counsels us. It leads us and shepherds us. It comforts us and protects us. Thank you for your presence, God, today. Give me the strength to pull out of my soul, God, the power of that calling, the power of that impression, that witness. Help me, Lord, to not ignore that obligation, not ignore that responsibility, not ignore that imperative, not ignore that urgent pressing in my life. But, God, that I could take you to a deeper area of my heart, that I could allow you to a deeper dimension of my soul, that I could give you without any form of denial every avenue of my heart. That I hold nothing back, that I keep nothing in store away. Because we are pressed by the Spirit. We are urged by the Word. We are prompted by the presence of God. Precious Jesus. Hallelujah. Samaria had a revival. Because somebody obeyed the Lord. Somebody obeyed the Lord. Hallelujah. God, we love you. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord.